Welcome into a Five Clubs conversation. I'm Gary Williams. In a moment, we're going to be joined by two of the most thoughtful people who happen to cover the game of golf. Now, if you were at Whistling Straits or watched it, this will be a Ryder Cup recap. And this was all about Team USA. Uh, it was a dominant performance from really top to bottom. Everybody in the lineup got a point. Meanwhile, on the European side, there were a number of players who were shut out, most notably Paul Casey, who saw way too much of Dustin Johnson over the course of the weekend. Dustin went 5-0. and There were a lot of guys who played exceptionally well. It was a great experience, and it was successful for Steve Stricker. There were certain things that he did to try to impart his kind of own touches on the event, and it worked out. And it will be interesting, and time will tell if this is truly a big pivot and a, a significant transitional phase for this team. I personally think that it is because I think the core of this team, whether it's Thomas, Spieth, Berger, Shoffley, Scheffler, Cantley, even Finau, who's in his early 30s, and so is, so is Brooks Kepka. The oldest guy on the team was Dustin Johnson, who is 37. So, but the, the key is going to be going on the road because it'll be 30 years when they go to Rome, the last time the United States won on European soil. Well, the guys who are going to join me to talk about this, uh, every single phase of what we saw, uh, what transpired, and really looking ahead uh, for some of these players because it's a little dicey uh, to start projecting based on a good week or a bad week that somebody, somebody's going to have some monster year. It's a very finicky format, uh, and I don't put too much stock in that. But the guys who are going to join me are Jaime Diaz and Eamon Lynch. Now, these are two of the most skilled writers in the game of golf, but not just golf. Two of the most skilled writers covering sports, period. And they also happen to be very good friends. Uh, Eamon is a senior writer at Golf Week. Jaime, who uh, does some writing still, but uh, does a ton of television for Golf Channel. Eamon is also a contributor. So very pleased to bring on uh, two good friends and two people who have a lot of thoughts on a lot of things. And with that, I welcome in two of the best writers who just happen to cover golf. Uh, they begrudgingly coexist on Golf Channel. Uh, that be Jaime Diaz and Eamon Lynch. Gentlemen, how are you? Good, thanks, Gary. I'm Jaime, good, you good. Can, Okay, I was going to say, Jaime, you, uh, can, you can say you're good, too. Uh, I was deferring to, to Eamon. Well, that's the first time you've done that. No, no, it isn't. <laughs> Thank doing you for it doing it on, on the new platform. That'll, that'll get a lot of traffic on social media. All right, <laughs> gentlemen, uh, we were all at Whistling Straits. Eamon, let me start with you. What was, the, what was the most surprising and least surprising thing about the week? The American victory in a way, Gary, because, you know, not every victory in the Ryder Cup kind of leads to a crisis. And I think we've become attuned to this idea that every two years there has to be some kind of autopsy, usually on the American side. Sometimes you just simply get outplayed, uh, which is not to say this isn't an inflection point for Europe. There's clearly a reckoning that has to come as one kind of generation of players ages out, and it's not quite clear where the next generation of players is actually coming from. I was kind of surprised by the scale of the victory on the American side, because in a way, I remember at one point thinking that when it was 9-3 that it actually made it look more competitive than it was because it really wasn't very competitive at all. So it's not that surprising, I suppose, that it was a 10-shot margin at the end. I thought it would be a lot closer than it was, but simply, you know, Europe was outplayed 
throughout every single match that they played. Basically, Europe was outplayed. So it's not really that surprising that we've reached this inflection point. But the next couple of years is really going to be a, a tough period of interrogation for the Europeans because there's a lot of changes need to happen to keep them at the level they've been at for the last 10, 15 years. And you wrote about it in Golf Week over the weekend. You know, Jaime, should we have been prepared for this? Because in the preamble going into the week, you know, primarily I, all I heard was that America was going to win, but that it was going to be highly competitive. It was going to be close, as we're accustomed to by and large. Should we have been prepared for this? Well, I think the cautionary tale was uh, Paris because it looked like this same scenario after a Hazel team. I mean, that was quite dominating and the U.S. was pretty young and, you know, the PGA Tour has become preeminent and it just seemed like, okay, they'll steamroll this uh, going forward more often. And, you know, I remember Alan Shipnick writing about it and then France happened and Alan was discredited and, and reviled and the European players all had a lot of shade in Freud. But, you know, I think he just was a little... Uh, ahead of his of his uh, moment, but uh, I really have felt like the U.S. has had the best team almost as long as I've covered the Ryder Cup, except for the first two that I covered was '87 and '89, and we didn't know it at the time because Seve and Faldo and Lyle and everybody wasn't fully appreciated at that moment uh, at Muirfield Village, especially. But the Hall of Fame and every other metric has proven those guys were great players and better than the top Americans at that time. But that stopped around the 90s. And since then, I feel like the, the Europe, Europe has been very cagey and very uh, kind of masters of, of intangibles and have scra scraped out, you know, in this really uh, admirable way and maximized what they had. But it's a slippery slope. And I felt like once the U.S. got off to a good start, the, the Europe was exposed as just not being very uh, uh, substantial in terms of their depth. And I think Rory playing poorly was a big blow psychologically, but also just in terms of points. So they just didn't have much. And I, I really think this is the weakest European team uh, relative to the United States team that we've seen, even though others had wider world ranking averages. This one was the one where the, the U.S. had the lowest uh, world ranking average at, I think, nine, which is astounding. Right. And Europe was a soft 30. You know, they were 30th uh, in their average, but it, when their top players, except for Rom, didn't play well, they were really outgunned. By the way, anytime Alan Shipnuck is reviled, we all rejoice collectively. Eamon, oh, <laughs> you know, one thing, and I, I said this after the fact, um, but I'll, I'll, I'll repeat it again. To me, the Americans, that additional year, if you look at their roster, by and large, they got better. And, and some players that likely would not have been on the side, Scotty Scheffler being one, uh, Harris English being another, but, but probably Morikawa because he had won the PGA. My point is, so many of their players in the time that it was originally supposed to be played to when it eventually did get played, did get measurably better. And with Europe, I felt like they just got a year older. Is that unfair? No, I think it's pretty accurate, Gary. You could throw in Jordan Spieth as another guy who would not have been on the Ryder Cup team had it been played on schedule back in 2020. And this really does cut to the point of where Europe will head towards this reckoning over the next couple of years in that the qualification process, it was so bastardized by the, the COVID process that they actually need to, they really need to have this point where they realize it's no longer working for them. 
And it's going to particularly become clear when the new official World Golf Rankings format kicks in or, or begins a year from now as, as they head towards that next Ryder Cup, because that's just going to put more and more emphasis on the players who actually play on the PGA Tour when you're no longer allowed to just designate a tournament as a flagship tournament, therefore it gets added world ranking points, the tournaments are weighted based on the quality of the field. And frankly, the quality of the field in most European tour events in the post-COVID era has been pretty lousy. And they can no longer have a, a qualification process for the Ryder Cup team that gives the same weight to European tour events because it doesn't really reflect the reality of the world that their, their team members are going to be playing in. And I think that's a real crisis for them. And it was interesting to hear Lee Westwood talk about that last week in Kohler, because if Lee Westwood is the captain in, in two years, which seems to be the conventional wisdom, he has stated that he doesn't think they should pick five people from that European race to Dubai points list, that it should be at best four, along with four captain's picks. And the captain's picks, in his way, reflects how differently the teams were captained. In advance, Padraig Harrington, two and a half years ago, long before COVID, negotiated down his captain's picks from four to three, he had a fair argument for that in the sense that he thinks being a pick puts more pressure on a player. He'd rather see guys qualify. But that's a generous position to take when COVID is just running rampant and completely throwing off your, your tour schedule, whereas Steve Stricker went from the traditional four picks up to six. So he got to pick half of his team, whereas Padraig Harrington's team, actually half of it wasn't settled until two weeks before the Ryder Cup. At Wentworth, another thing that Westwood's upset about that it ended so late and began so early. So th there's a complete overhaul necessary of the European process to get on this team. But it definitely that year was crucial. The American team legislated for that better by increasing their number of picks to give themselves more latitude. Podrick had that option to do that. He chose not to. And I think it kind of cost him towards the end. Jaime, do you agree that, that you would maybe make some changes with respect to the qualification process? Because I agree with Eamon. If you look at the makeup of their team, Bern Wiesberger really is the only player who, who plays primarily on the European Tour. Everybody else, they may play a handful of events and then they're getting some, some points with some co-sanctioned events. Uh, but by and large, all these guys are in America. I would go straight off the world ranking system or give give the guy more picks, one or the other. But I think going off the European tour list, the race to Dubai list has been devalued because simply uh, Europe's, I think the strength of fields and the, and the quality of the tournaments is just something that doesn't draw the top players enough. And I think Bernd Biesberger was sort of the, the I, I think the inflection point where you saw the guy who was the last qualifier really be the weakest link on the team. And, I remember those guys, uh, Hovland and Weisberger, were three up on Spieth and and, uh, and and Justin Thomas on Saturday morning. That was like the last gasp. They should have won that match, and they just kind of leaked it away, and it was really out of nerves and silly mistakes mm -hmm. that, you know, from an experience and pressure. Um, now, that's that's maybe being unfair a little bit to Burnt by just singling him out, but since we're talking about, you know, the depth of the team and where it was lacking, I think it was lacking because – he was a qualifier that should have been uh, not a qualifier as far as having more picks for, for Padraig, and he wouldn't have picked him. He would have picked Justin Rose probably or someone else with more experience, and not to put the whole you know loss on him, but 
that was probably their last gasp. When they blew that match, that was a killer uh, because by that time it was a runaway going into Saturday afternoon. Um, but yes, I, I like, I've always liked the world ranking. I think it's, it's certainly it had early flaws. It, it's continued to be uh, refined to the point where I think it's a mathematical equation. And of course it's not perfect, but gosh, you look at the top 10, I, I always look at it over the last five, 10 years. I always feel like that's about where I would be. Uh, and I think number one is never, I sure you see changes within it every two weeks sometimes just because guys lose points or gain points at a kind of a random, it seems random, but it's not. Um, but overall, long-term, I think it's gotten it right. And I think it'd be the best way for Europe to measure themselves. Eamon, the point about Padraig Harrington saying an additional captain's pick puts more pressure on the additional player. To me, you're putting more pressure on the captain. It's his pick. I, you know, the player may feel some added pressure. I, I don't know necessarily that that's the case. Personally, I think every captain should should comprise half of the team themselves. For the most part, these guys are going to go right down the list anyway for probably three of the six. What, what do you think about splitting the difference and having six automatics and six? And, and you know, look, they can, they can all do what they want to do, the American side and the European side. Mm -hmm. I think they should split it. Well, you could also make an argument. Why not just give 12 captains picks? Yep. I mean, obviously, the reason in Europe that there's a, they're trying to maintain loyalty and playing loyalty to the tour to do that. And obviously, people want to see metrics and be aware of how the race is going, the qualification process over the two years. But, you know, it's one of those fungible things that captains picks has changed so many times over the years. This was an extreme circumstance this time around. And at the end of the day, in the Harrington case, who was missing? from this team. He, give him another two, three captain's picks. Would it have been any different? I guess Justin Rose, as Jaime pointed out, he's literally the only other guy in the conversation. And Justin Rose has been playing fairly mediocre golf by his standards all year long. So it's not even clear that he would have been picked over Wiesberger, who's actually won a couple of times. Padraig Harrington had to bet on the last stand of this older generation of guys because he didn't have another option. And I think that's where the crux is coming for Europe in the next few years is where is the next wave coming from? Because you, you have guys like Lee Westwood and Poulter and Casey and perhaps even Sergio are heading towards the exit uh, on this team. And it's not quite clear who's next. You've got the Highgard twins, but they're pretty young. You mm -hmm. Sam Horsfield in England, Bob McIntyre in Scotland. None of them are at that level yet to be consistently winning or even considered really for a Ryder Cup team. So to me, that's where the European crisis comes in the next few years, is where is that next wave? All the captain's picks in the world wouldn't have helped Harrington this time. We had this conversation. And, and the team he had didn't play yeah. well either, which is obviously decisive. No, you're right. And I know that you wrote about this, and we, we spoke about it uh, when we were together last week, that if you look at the future of the European Ryder Cup team, and it's not that, that they can't produce talent over the next three to five years. Um, but if you look at the President's Cup depth, potentially on the international side, Jaime, and, and you look what Trevor Immelman next up for the international side, I think that they have not only better depth one through 12, they have better depth one through 20. Well, they also have a better feeder system for whatever reason. I think one of them is the most basic thing of all is just weather. Uh, when you have good climates, you have Young, more young players coming up. And Europe's always, I think, had that difficulty of, you know, so many of the really good players go to Spain in the, in the, uh, in the winter. And it's just not easy to be a great junior player in Europe or as easy it would be in Asia or in South Africa or in Australia. 
And I think that's where, you know, this, they've been exposed in terms of producing consistently good young players through the system. And yeah, the, you know, the Hoygaard trims when they are special, but there's only two of them. And I don't know that you're seeing, you saw who knows why exactly, but you saw Sevi and Faldo. And I keep going back to those years. Uh, there was no feeder system, but mm. there was a tremendous ambition. There was tremendous hunger. There was tremendous, you know, willingness to put yourself and sacrifice everything for the game. And I, I sense a little bit of, and this is the old argument, you know, of decadence that, you know, the U S used to get criticized for. I sense your players, European players get a little too comfortable. Uh, if they're not, if they're really good, they come to America. If they want a kind of a more balanced lifestyle, they stay in Europe. But it's a good living, and I don't sense that hunger for excellence, even from Rory, I hate to say it, you know? And, and that's, I think it starts from the top there. It's almost like people have re reprioritized what is a good life for a, for a player. And a balanced life with less, you know, stress and less travel and maybe a better family situation it seems, it seems, and this is so you know impossible to quantify, but it seems like the value system has changed a little. And and Tiger's a cautionary tale, and Seve's a cautionary tale, and Faldo's a cautionary tale. Is it worth it being that great? I just don't see the hunger, uh, and you know you don't see it necessarily as much either on the U.S. tour. But the U.S. tour has such an incredible infrastructure, and there's just you know the ability to have have it all in America. When you're a young player in Europe. I don't know what the mm. future looks like. I mean, can you be really great? And I, I see these young guys coming up and I, I see all the sort of the second tier guys who are going to fill out the Ryder Cup in the future. They're all in the bottom 50 of the top 100. There's nobody who you go, wow, that guy is so talented. He's going to separate himself. You saw Rom. Rom is the outlier. But Rom basically cultivated his game in America as well. Yep. Uh, he's special, but he's alone uh, until Rory starts to join him. And you got Victor Hovland, who's really good, but has some holes in his game and he's working on them, but it's kept him. And it actually, they were exposed in the Ryder cup. Again, it's kept him from being a, a champion uh, at the highest level. We'll, we'll get to Rory here in a second. Eamon, you know, I, I've always had the belief that, you know, in America, it's a PGA of America property and in Europe, it's the European tour. And I, I get that, you know, you can boil it down to the other team made more putts and it's that simple. I, I think it runs deeper than that. I feel like it has, I feel like in Europe, and, and Rory used this term, and I, it's not because he used it that I'm saying this, I've always felt that European tour players felt it was a privilege to be on the Ryder Cup team. And I think in America, I, I, I think that they all care, they wanna win, but I've always felt to some degree there was an undercurrent of obligation. And there's a big difference between privilege and obligation. And, and I've, I sense that it may be shifting. I'm not suggesting that, that they have, you know, a renewed relationship with the PGA of America, but I do think that they have an investment in terms of the intellectual input that they are permitting from these players. I mean, we, we, we see it. The captains are in a system. They're kind of in charge of that. Um, and I think on the European tour, I still think they're all, they're all a product of the European tour and they'll never forget where they came from. And they understand what a cash cow the event is for their tour, um, but I do think on the American side that this generation, I don't know that they, I would go so far as to say they all feel it's a privilege, but more that than the undercurrent of obligation. What do you think about that? I think that's pretty fair, Gary. I mean, I, I do think that what defined that great European Ryder Cup run 
from the 80s, probably into the mid 2000s, was this kind of chip on the shoulder. I, I, I would describe it as a soft anti-Americanism in a way, nothing that was kind of ugly in any sense, but this, we're just going to prove ourselves. You, you guys think you run the golf world, we're going to show you. And I think that defined a lot of the, the European success. I don't get the feeling that this generation anymore has that chip on the shoulder because the Jaime's point, they all live here. I mean, half the European team lives in Jupiter or Scottsdale. So I, I think that has diminished a little bit on the other side. And I think the American side has, has definitely kind of grown into it a little bit more with this younger generation. I mean, it's, you remember Tiger famously said that nobody could tell him what Jack's Ryder Cup record was off the top of their head. To me, that kind of spoke to this attitude of the lone wolf syndrome on the PGA Tour. And I don't think it's a coincidence that the last three Ryder Cups the United States team has won. Tiger Woods wasn't on the team. And it's going all the way back to 2008 when he was injured. And I think there's a, a diminishing of that kind of lone wolf mentality in the PGA Tour right now in terms of at least as the Ryder Cup goes. And it's probably been borne up through the President's Cup where you, the, the, the task force system was widely mocked. And in a lot of ways, it deserved to be widely mocked. But the one thing it has done is kind of create this situation where they're trying to invest the players more in the process. I, I've always believed that the captaincy has been kind of too much crowdsourced and has existed in this little kind of old boys network. But the effect of trying to invest the players in the process, more particularly this younger generation of players has worked and they've bought in and they bring other people along with them. The Speets, the, the Justin Thomases, the Xander Shoffleys, all of these guys sort of bring team passion along to it. And I think it, it kind of inculcates that in other guys as well. You agree with that, Jaime, that, that this core group that we expect to be part of the American system for the next decade, uh, many of them are, are peers literally down to the high school graduating year, um, that, that they are, that they're, they're in this in a way that maybe you could question uh, obviously, Tiger, and that, that, that's such a different, unusual, profound dynamic that, that, you know, hard to deal with for him and for his teammates. But this core group um, is, they're in good hands. Would you say that? I think so. I think before, uh, it was almost a no-win for, for Americans, to, not to play in the Ryder Cup, but certainly to, you know, feel like, uh, what am I going to get get out of this? If we win, we're supposed to win. If we lose, we're going to get excoriated. Uh, and I think, especially top players who were the target of that kind of criticism, Tiger in particular, resented a little bit the situation. And I think it kept them from being, you know, fully, passionately, emotionally involved for the Ryder Cup. Uh, and I think as that has lessened, and there's been more respect for Europe winning, number one, and it doesn't seem like such an upset when the U.S. loses, that, I think, softened the stakes a little bit for Americans. It's like, you know, this is a privilege, let's play. We lose, we've lost before. Before, if you lost, you know, I say before in the 90s, you know, I remember 91, that that was the most pressure the Americans ever felt. I mean, they, they could not lose that match because not only was, you know, it about the Ryder Cup, it was about the tours. And, you know, it's not about the tours anymore. Before it was like, you know, the European tour might be as good or better than the PGA tour. There was actually talk about that. So there was this immense pride and immense, you know, uh, uh, motivation for the Europeans, as, as Eamon was suggesting, you know, we're going to show you, but not only are we going to show you, we are actually way better than you guys think we are. Uh, uh, and, and the world power may be on this side, 
And that was a big blow to America's pride and especially the spectators going, oh my God, you got to stand up just like when America lost the America's Cup uh, in sailing. And that's gone away, I think. Uh, and now it's, you know, it's a great competition. The tour situation has been settled. The European tour is not as good as the PGA tour. There's not that, you know, kind of uh, burden that the Americans are carrying. And so now uh, I feel like when they win, uh, it's, they get the full glory of it. And when they lose, it's not a humiliation. And I think they also feel now, hey, you know what? The tide has turned. We're going to win a lot. This is going to be a lot of fun. We're all together. Let's make this a party. You know, let's make this something where we celebrate every two years. And that's changed the mentality totally, I think. I know it's a little premature. I think Italy will tell the tale mm -hmm. on that. Uh, but if they win in Italy, I think that's the momentum going forward. Yeah, I would agree with that. Eamon, let's talk about Rory. Um, I don't know if I, I don't know if you would say that that the week was a microcosm of the year. He did win a golf tournament. By and large, his production was fine. It wasn't to his level, um, and and it's it's a dicey proposition to think you know what's going on in somebody's life. Um, and you know he's he's building a family. Uh, but what would you make of his week? I think it's fair to say it was a microcosm of the year. I mean, there was one highlight on Sunday and a, and a lot of dreck out there. I mean, I I would actually argue Rory McIlroy's year is a bit of a lost year right now in, in terms of his production. He got that one win at Quiela Hollow, but that was kind of a placebo effect on the work with, with Pete Cowan. And otherwise, it's, it's very debatable if the work with Pete Cowan is actually producing the results that Rory McIlroy was hoping it's going to produce. I mean, it's his game is measurably worse in almost every statistical category in the in the time since he's worked with Pete beginning back in March at the Players' Championship. And I, he just seems to be completely lost in, in the swing fog right now where he doesn't trust it. You know, there are some good weeks and there are some bad during the FedEx Cup playoffs, for instance. He had a couple of weeks where he putted really well. Other times he kind of struck the ball well for a couple of rounds, but it, there's nothing consistent in there right now with Rory. And he just seems to be kind of wandering the desert a little bit to me at the moment. Jaime, you and I have had this discussion about him for a lot of years. Um, and it's, it's uh, again, the dime store psychoanalysis. Um, you know, we all kind of do it to some degree. Um, but you, you, you kind of hinted at it in terms of, you know, where is his head? Where is his heart? Uh, I think his heart's in the right place, uh, but I don't think he's predatorial. I just don't think he's wired in a way that maybe he thought he was at a young age and then he grew up and he realized that there's a hell of a lot more in the world and in life with a curious mind which he possesses than just golf. What do you think? Well, Gary, I think, first of all, you're right, we're guessing and it does feel a little uncomfortable to try to psychoanalyze Rory McIlroy yeah. because, uh, first of all, he is quite... Um, open in so many ways relative to other tour players and so it's almost unfair to pile on since he gives us a lot that we use it against him and I don't mean to use it against him but I do feel and I was very impressed when I first met him how much he knew about Tiger Woods's career and how he knew every year from the age of 11 you know everything he had done and really wanted to model his game after Tiger his physical game put it that way and I think what he did learn is he's not wired like Tiger. And uh, there's no shame in that because Tiger is a one-off. And, and there's difficulties and complications when you're wired like Tiger. And it's, a, it's about choices at that point. And who knows what the choices that Rory has made internally. But I think 
being like Tiger is not the all out uh, goal anymore uh, and hasn't been for a while. And that doesn't mean he would have been Tiger. I just mean that, you know, that that complete obsession with golf and complete obsession with, you know, making every weakness in your game a strength and, you know, continually improving. That is a mania that creates greatness. And we saw it with Faldo. I always think of Faldo because I think he was a forerunner. He just didn't quite have the same, you know, environment to be that great uh, that Tiger did. Uh, and he was an experimenter in many ways who probably, if he could do it differently, would have a different swing and have a more powerful swing. But the point is, he worked at it incessantly and it made him everything he possibly could have been almost as a player. I don't think he left anything out there. You feel like Rory's left a lot out there. On the other hand, perhaps he's gained in that area in life. And in the end, you know, are you happy? I mean, every person lives in their own head. Are you happy? And I think Rory, I think would feel like, you know, I've had a very good life and I'm, and I've got good relationships and I'm strong in my own family with my dad and everybody else and my mom and, you know, a, a, a million friends. And it doesn't mean that I can't be a great golfer, but maybe I want, I'm not going to be as great as I thought I might be. And, uh, cause I, that's what I see. I, I just don't see the effort and the obsession and the frustration enough and the hunger and the, just the unwillingness to accept what for him is mediocrity. Uh, he seems to roll with it and, you know, that's okay. Uh, obviously. Uh, but it, it's when we're measuring people historically, he's losing ground as a result. Uh, I think he can live with that, but unless he turns it around some way, his peak years were in the twenties and the rest is going to be problematic to ever reach that again. Eamon, you know, I mean, you know, a lot of generational players have a darkness to them, almost sinister. You know, it's not that they're bad people, but they are, you know, they're, they're wired to think about themselves, which you're required to. Um, and I don't know that he is, one, dark. I don't think he's dark at all. Uh, and then the other thing that I don't know, it may just be that he's got a few holes in his game and, and we point to you know, the fact that he doesn't win and we say that it's a question of effort or desire, and maybe he's just an ordinary putter. And, and you know, the, the wedge game uh, is kind of confounding to me, but, I mean, when you look at him, is he, is it, is he too civilized? <laughs> I think there's an argument. There, there's some merit to, to Jaime's argument here and the question there's a difference, I suppose, a fine line, Gary, between how badly you want it and how much you're willing to give up to get it. And I've never had the sense in, in all the conversations I've had with Rory that there's a lack of desire for it. I, I sometimes question whether or not there's a lack of what he's willing to give up for that, including the the, the aspects Jaime mentioned about you know personal happiness and home life. Because you, you mentioned Faldo and you mentioned Tiger as two guys who had this mania to get where they were, both of them left the wreckage of private lives going back decades. And it, they've had a lot of misery and left a lot of misery behind them. And at a certain point, you wonder if that trade-off is actually worth it over the years. Maybe they've wondered that themselves, not to get into the psychoanalysis business <laughs> here. But with Rory, there are certain weaknesses. Yeah, the wedge game hasn't gotten measurably better. The putting has always been kind of ebb and flow and mostly ebbing and it's there are certain things you wonder why he's not improving at it is he working hard enough at specific areas of his game but I also think there's this assumption and we see it a lot now this year particularly with the work with Pete Cowan where we see a lot of people 
who ought to know better simply say, why doesn't he just go back to doing what he did, which is like implying if you, you know, you put a layer of paint on a wall that if you chisel it off, you're simply going to have the perfect layer of paint you had underneath that. That's not how elite golf swings work. And I'm, I'm not sure it's possible that Rory McIlroy can easily ever get back to the swing of the player that he was. You, you certainly never have that bulletproof confidence again that he had in his, his 20s. None of us ever have that as you move through life. But I definitely think there's, there is a desire there, what he's willing to give up for that desire, what other areas of his life he's willing to kind of uh, snip off and kind of cast aside. I, I would question whether he's really willing to do that, but I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing either. The, the best player on the European team was John Rahm. Uh, he's the number one player in the world. It, it, you know, th- there's been a lot of guys who've gotten a number one in the last three years. I'm not going to ask you if Jaime is going to stay there for the next year, but you know, Rory achieved a lot in his mid twenties. This guy is 26 years old. He was sensational last week. Scotty Scheffler blitzed him to start that singles match, and he was too far behind. Is he? Do you think he is a generational player? And, and again, we start piling up these majors, and there's only four of them, but is he a generational player? I think he's on the verge of it. He's on the fringe of it. He hasn't won, obviously, enough majors, uh, and he hasn't completely convinced everybody that his temperament is still of the caliber of a, a Nicholas or a Woods in terms of you know, coming down the stretch and closing out things on Sunday. Uh, but his you know, physical properties are so impressive. Uh, I, I, what I love about John Rahm is, first of all, he's got a great physical, you know, uh, uh, mechanism, his body. It, it, it's a gift. He's, he's very strong without having a lot of stiffness. It's flexible. Uh, it's got a wide base and great hand-eye coordination, which, you know, that's not necessarily something you develop. Uh, you're gifted with it, but he proved it as a kid just playing with bracket sports and being very good at something called pilota, which has got a very small hitting area and a very small ball. And so he's, you know, he's very comfortable hitting a golf ball and he hits it solid all the time. I remember asking Colin Montgomery about, you know, because Colin never had a problem hitting the ball solid. He didn't hit it very far, but he hit it over and over very well. And he goes, it's, it's very nice that to not have to worry about mechanics very much and just get up and hit it. Uh, he works on his game, obviously, but he has a gift. He knows he's going to hit the ball, you know, not off the planet very often and usually quite solid. So, that, I think, brings an effortlessness to his game in terms of being consistent week to week. And he's got great hands and can putt. Uh, so that's a lot. Uh, how much does he want it? He seems like he wants it a lot. So I was high on him early. Uh, again, not that this sounds like you know taking vows, but, I mean, we used to talk about it. And I thought in 10 years I'd take his record over anybody else's, whether it was you know Jordan Spieth or, or Justin Thomas. Uh, I think his consistency has already probably uh, uh, exceeded theirs. Will he turn it into majors? That's how historically he will be. You know, when you're when you're measuring a generational player, that's how you measure mostly. And wins, of course. Uh, and he has had a lot of wins. He's had a million top fives. Uh, so I'm giving you a long answer, but I do feel like of everyone, he's the one with the best chance to be a generational player. It wasn't your um, longest answer, but it was long. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, I, well, these podcasts, you know, I thought you encouraged that. Got You've got history in, in doing podcasts. <laughs> I'll stop. No, anyway, no, no. I'm high on John Rom, and uh, I, I do see, you know, the mental side of it being an asset on balance because I think 
the will is really high. And I think that's the determiner beyond everything else. Eamon, we- Is he still talking? Yes, he's still talking. <laughs> he, he turned a long answer and then he, he qualified his long answer with the long qualifier. Um, we overweight these weeks, I think, because it's a funky format and you've got a teammate for four of the five sessions. And I'm not gonna ask you necessarily, are their results gonna translate to anything? Did, was there anything that, that Bryson DeChambeau or Brooks Kepka did last week that foreshadows anything going forward? I think it was a good week for DeChambeau for two reasons. One, I think, this is a guy who I think really needs to feel as though he's liked and loved. And he got that last week. The, the fans were universally for him. Given the rough summer he's had with the hecklers, I think that was actually really important for him. And you could even see this week when he showed up at the, the Long Drive Championship, there's a, there's a bounce in his step again. Uh, he actually seemed to enjoy being on the golf course last week, which hasn't looked as though it's true, basically for the last three, four months out there on the PGA Tour. So I definitely think it was a key moment for him. And, you know, Brooks was, was doing Brooks things. He was, he was going about his business. I didn't necessarily think it was any kind of sea change or reset button for him. I think it matters more for DeChambeau because it looks as though this feud has been to some degree put to bed with that kind of Corleone Fredo hug that they had, which didn't look as though it was the warmest in the world. But and it's, it's going to be interesting because if those guys choose to do one of those made for TV matches down the road, is the interest level or is the value of that somewhat diminished because now everyone thinks, well, they're actually they're back to being buddies again or as much as they ever were. But I, I, it was definitely on the whole a much better week for DeChambeau. I think Brooks got through his business the way he intended to. I think he put to rest the perception that he wasn't interested in it, which I actually thought was somewhat an unfair reading of the Gop Digest interview at the outset. But on the whole, it was a much better week for Bryson all around. Uh, Jaime, it, it, Brooks Kepka is ambivalent about what people think by and large. And DeChambeau cares way too much about what most people who, who really don't matter care. Um, as far as Kepka going forward, I, I mean, I, I'm not saying that it's, it's all projection, his, his presentation, uh, but there's a lot of that. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, I'm gonna show you that I, I care very little about a lot of things um, and I'm gonna do things my way, which again, that's fine. How about him going forward? Well, you know, I, I look at where the ball's going. It's not going as good as it used to go. And I think he's his self-description occasionally lapses into, I think, revealing words. He goes, you know, I'm like glass, my body. You know, he talks about, oh, I'm fine. Everything's great. And then when you when he's pressed on it a little bit, he will, you know, whether it's calculated or not, he will reveal that, you know, he's not the same. Uh, I remember the the opening to the Golf Digest uh, uh, interview with, uh, with, with Matt, with Matthew Rudy described his knee as misshapen, his right knee's misshapen. I mean, you know, these guys are athletes and you gotta be able to do it physically first and foremost. And I don't know that he can do it to the same extent that he used to it, and that's all. I mean, he's still very good, but I mean, he did win those four majors in nine tries and that's historic. And to reach that level again, it, it's almost like a Rory question. I mean, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's possible. And I think that he's already, I think hinting that, it, you know, he's different. And if he's different, he's not the alpha dog anymore. And he can act like it, and it's great in terms of his own, perhaps, uh, mental frame of mind when he plays. But I think it's really more about, uh, you know, 
as you say, projecting an image that he wants out there that I don't think he can quite back up to the same extent. And, you know, he's, he's doing his best, but I don't know that his best can be as good as it used to be. Uh, and he could prove us all wrong. Uh, but, you know, when he talks about 14 majors, I'm like, whoa, you know, hey, win five first, and then we'll see. Uh, I want to see the next one in terms of him being as great as he used to be. Eamon, the guy who wasn't there last week, and there were, there were a handful of Americans that some people thought, you know, give him a shot, whether it's Nah or Kisner, um, Webb Simpson, who's got a past history. Patrick Reed was not there. Is Patrick Reed in a pickle now going forward? with these teams yeah and he put himself there and i think it all stems from sunday night in paris three years ago when his wife and mother-in-law started flailing at the backroom team uh, <laughs> on the u.s side and then patrick gave that interview to karen Kreis in the new york times making similar arguments and the problem with that is it's the same backroom team this time around you know steve stricker and Davis Love were vice captains for Jim Furyk. Furyk and Davis Love were vice captains for Steve Stricker. And I think there, I don't think you will find many guys on that American team who would have advocated for Patrick Reed. And and that's a sad commentary because his record in team competition is so strong. Clearly, his interest and passion for team golf and representing his country is so strong. But the toxicity that comes along with Patrick Reed is not good for a team environment at all. And I think there was a general sense that the American team was better off without him, which has got to be tough for a guy who likes to brand himself as Captain America to hear. But, you know, there's a there's a valid argument that Patrick Reed will have to earn his spot on any Ryder Cup team going forward, even though he's still a, a young man in his early 30s. But he's going to have to earn his spot because the odds of him getting a pick will rely upon great charity and a captain that he might not find anytime soon. Jaime, I thought that Tiger gave him cover at Royal Melbourne. Uh, he came out and basically said, hey, he's on this team, and that no one was going to say boo uh, that week about, about his presence there, particularly in the aftermath of what had just happened. To, to Eamon's point, if, if he doesn't automatically qualify, is he borderline persona non grata? I think now he, he has become, he's fallen in terms of his perceived value uh, and they have, they're pretty loaded. So, you know, to make him a pick, you're bringing on a lot of intangibles and, and, and uh, uh, baggage that uh, if, if, if the, if the formula is working, you don't want to interrupt it. And, and I think he might be looked at as an interruption. Now, I, I don't think he did any, himself any favors also with his COVID. Uh, it's okay. I mean, you know, he got COVID, but the explanation, it just, it sort of, you know, suggested this guy cannot quite give you a straight answer. Um, and, and he's not to be trusted in perhaps the way that you would trust other players in, in terms of their, uh, you know, their commitment, their integrity, what they're going to say about you later on, all that stuff. Um, and so, you know, he's become a question mark as good as he is. I mean, there's no better perfect prototype match player than, than Patrick Reed. Uh, he's, su he's super talented. So I, if he makes the team, I think he'll be welcome. But I, I think he'd be a tough pick at this point um, for these things that have kind of piled up now on him, you know, and there's a history there. Tiger loved him because he, he goes out and gets points. He gets wins. He gets it done. Um, now, he may still be able to do that, but other things have overtaken that. And I think the value systems change as well. Eamon, if you mentioned Westwood in Italy, that seems to make sense. Zach Johnson seems to make the most sense. 
on the American side. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think the Zach ones, it, it seems inevitable just the way the task force has been set up where you can see guys sort of move through this vice captaincy process over several years and it becomes this anointing, this papal anointing of the next captain that everyone knows who it is. It's Zach is 45. He might still have this notion that he's got another team in him. But it's, it seems much more clear on the American side where the, the pattern will go over the next few years because of the task force template that they're using. The European side is going to be a free-for-all in the years <laughs> to come. Because look at the guys out there. Yeah. You've got Westwood, you've got Stenson, you have Sergio, you have Poulter, Justin Rose, you have Luke Donald, you have Graham McDowell, you know, you have Paul Casey. There's a lot of guys out there who are going to miss out, frankly, on, because there aren't enough jobs to go around <laughs> for this kind of old boys network on, on the European tour with these guys. So it's, it's definitely going to be a, a bit of a scramble over there to see who gets it. I do think Westwood's the leading candidate uh, at 49 next April uh, for, for the, the gig in Rome. Zach would appear to be the obvious one, but, you know, wrinkles could happen. What if Tiger suddenly decides, well, you know, he's no longer willing to put in what would be required to come from where he has been in the last few months back to elite golf. If he decides that that's not worth it when he's physically recovered, that he doesn't want to pursue the game in, in the way that he did, then suddenly Tiger becomes a candidate for the, the job in Rome or, or at Bethpage. And certainly, it's, I would expect him to be the leading candidate at Adair Manor in Ireland just because of his relationship with J.P. McManus, who hosts that famous pro-am there. So there, there are a lot of things that go wrong. Same thing, the way a lot of things can go wrong with this team. I mean, we talk about the mm -hmm. idea of dominance in the years to come, but that assumes guys stay healthy. Yep. The guys suddenly don't, the games don't go south, that the yips don't come in, that they don't hit speed bumps in their in their personal and private life that, you know, complicates careers. Right now, they're all in this beautiful little sort of seamless area where golf is kind of the dominant thing in their lives. And that can change in a heartbeat. And so this team now, it, it looks fine. It looks almost indomitable for the years to come, but it could look very different two years from now. Uh, Jaime, Eamon keeps saying the task force. I thought that they stopped using that term not long after they named it the task force because they got lampooned for naming it. I thought it was the Ryder Cup committee. Why do you keep saying the task force? Because I'm European. <laughs> That's exactly why. Because they, they, they were, made they fun were of it. They were very proud of it. They were very proud of it at first. And uh, I think with every win, they'll feel like, you know, it's got a nostalgic kind of ring to it and <laughs> will be a positive. I, I don't see it as a, you know, as a bad label. I, I wonder whether it's smart to have a really strict kind of, you know, uh, uh, plan all the time. Uh, I, I thought Stricker actually uh, very, uh, uh, deviated from it slightly. He didn't talk about pods, which uh, I think pods were synonymous with task force for a while. By the way, just talking about the, the captain, the, I think one little possibility um, that could be considered is both Phil Mickelson and Fred Couples are in the Italian-American Sports Hall of Fame. And <laughs> I could see <laughs> Italy embracing them. Um, and Fred has never been Ryder Cup captain. I know, you know, he's certainly been a successful President's Cup captain. As an assistant captain, he was always not, you know, considered the most uh, influential on the team. But... Who knows? I, I think Zach personally, 45 is pretty young. Uh, he's, an, he's, mm. he's an old soul, uh, but, you know, he, he could have another chance. But I think he's kind of in the same spot as Luke Donald. Luke Donald being, mm. you know, 
very prominently uh, number one player for a while and a bit forgotten. And he may get passed over because um, he was too young at one time. And now uh, other guys will take over. But sorry, I, I uh, hijacked your question. No, not at all. Do, I, you do know, we really think that Freddie wants this kid? Yeah, but first of all, oh. do you really think that the residents of Italy know that Fred Couples and Phil Mickelson are in the Hall of Fame? After two years of, uh, of marketing, they will, yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the interesting thing about the European, all those guys, they're all the same age, you know, basically. Yeah. I mean, Rose, yeah. McDowell, Donald, Stenson, um, who I am I leaving out? Co-captains. Yeah. yeah, I mean, they're all, they're all <laughs> I mean, they're, they're all essentially, you know, early to mid 40s. But unfortunately, a lot of those guys, not necessarily Stenson and Rose, but, but Graham, uh, Luke Donald, you know, they've they've been under dry spell for a couple of years. I, I agree with you that they're all lined up. I, I want to know, though, who will be at Bethpage, because I can tell you this. If I was a, a family member of any team member from Europe, I wouldn't want to be anywhere near there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Seriously, who, who will see? I think it's either Tiger or Phil's. It's Tiger's if he wants it. It's Phil's if Tiger doesn't want it. What do yeah. you think of that? Agree. Phil is tied to Bethpage uh, uh, historically and I think uh, temperamentally too. And the and New Yorkers love him. All that's been established. Tiger, I think it's always going to be Tiger when it, whenever he wants it. So he doesn't have to wait in line. And that may be a place, uh, you know, New York would be a difficult place in terms of all the demands media-wise for him too. So I think he'll, he'll cherry pick it. Uh, Tiger will, and I think Phil would look at Beth Page as a perfect fit. Anybody, and isn't it more important yeah. to argue who the European captain is at Beth Page because that's yeah. going to be a hostile environment, yes. the likes of which we haven't seen in a long time. To me, that lends itself to Poulter, who's the one guy who seems to actually embrace the idea of being a uh, lightning yeah. rod because yeah. it gives air cover to the, the guys around him. He almost sort of thrives on that, but it, it's going to be ugly at Beth Page. Every tournament they've ever held at Beth Page. Is ugly. It, you know, it's a mob yep. of beer swilling halfwits that are out there, and that's obviously not all. Town, but there's a sig- <laughs> there's a significant constituency of that fan element at Bethpage. It was evident there again at the 2019 PGA Championship. It's going to be an overdrive once we get to the Ryder Cup four years from now, and that will, I think, really play into the, the choosing of captains, particularly on the European side, because it's not just who can tolerate it. The two can embrace it because the players are going to struggle with it that week for sure. And I, I think you're right, Gary. None of them are going to really want their families too close to the action inside the ropes if there is any kind of environment that would be that hostile. Yeah, I, you know, the whole poultry thing to me, though, I understand, like, he was eyeballing people on Sunday. I mean, they're getting <laughs> blown out. He's so combative. I, I think they need yeah. somebody who's affable. He, they'll, yeah. They will absolutely barbecue him. They need I a think. diplomat. I think they need a diplomat, someone yeah. who can win the crowd somehow. Somebody like yeah. McDowell. Yeah. You know, I mean, and maybe his profile is not high enough and maybe he's too young. I, I have no idea. Let me ask you a few other things game-wise before I let you go. Going into next year, Eamon, what do you think the biggest challenge Jay Monahan has? I still think it's seeing off the Saudi threat, to be honest, Gary. I think it's, it's still out there. They're still kind of uh, making approaches to various players. Players are occasionally making noises that they're interested. Other players are making noises that they aren't. 
But the, the thing with the Saudis is when you have an unlimited budget, you can hang around as long as you want and you can play a very long game. And I think ultimately that's going to be the issue that Jay has to deal with. And I think there are going to be a lot of changes that he's going to make in terms of the, the tour schedule over the next couple of years that will re- kind of reflect that reality. I think you're going to see a closer merging of schedules with the European Tour, particularly post-FedEx Cup into the race to Dubai period. I think you'll see more PGA Tour players get into co-sanctioned events heading towards the, the end of the year in the Mideast and Europe. And I also think you're going to see some new version of these World Golf Championships. I don't think the concept has gone away because ultimately that's the easiest way to give free uncontested money to elite players is to create elite small field events. And I think you're going to see more of those created over the next couple of years as well. But I, I do think fighting that kind of rear guard action against the threat of splinter tours is probably going to be his priority. And while he's managed to hold it off so, so far, I actually think he needs to be more aggressive and he needs to be more public in messaging the players exactly what he has coming out there. Because right now it looks too much as though the tour is being unresponsive to the Saudi threat, which I don't actually think is true, but the messaging isn't really reflecting the reality. Jaime, what do you think his biggest challenge is? Well, I would agree with Eamon uh, primarily. I, I do think gambling is an interesting dynamic right now. It, it, everybody seems to be all in that it's great for the game and it's going to you know, uh, it, it, uh, increase interest and bring new fans to the game, et cetera. I, I still think there's going to be unintended consequences. I, there's just, to me, uh, certainly the fan behavior in, in live betting on course, that's, that's going to create some emotional uh, responses and, and attacks of players and Already I mean, has. Already huh? has. It already has. Yeah. Uh, and I, I don't know. There's also in every every time gambling has been part of a sport, there's been some corruption at some point. Um, and, you know, I know you can monitor things more now with with, uh, you know, all the all the digital uh, uh, tools at, at, at hand. But I, I just don't trust it that much. And I, I mean, I'm an old fogey, but I, I don't love love it being part of golf to this extent i i just feel like uh it's putting the priority away from the game and all about the result and i do like that the the betters the sophisticated uh you know handicappers really have gotten into the analytics and i'm learning things from them they could because there's so much at stake they really have figured out what's the most important metric you know whether we've learned it's it's strokes gain t to green or excuse me stroke gain approach uh, that's interesting to learn about how the game is played a little bit, but that's, that's a side issue. I fundamentally just don't like, uh, gambling being gamblers being the most important audience. And it's almost feels like it's getting there. You know, one thing that I think is a challenge for him that he has no control over is the fact that we don't know if Tiger's ever going to play again. And Phil Mickelson is 51 years of age. And if you look at the tour, there are a lot of likable players but they've got a new TV deal. They've got, you know, the emergence of streaming. And people don't, like with Tiger, people would find any means possible to watch him. And the, the linear product is not as valuable as it once was. Uh, you know, it's, it's great to have all these different apparatuses that you can certainly use to, to be able to watch the product. They need some American players to be consistently good to great. Because I, I wonder about the value of the property on the weekends if, if a lot of these players are not necessarily homogenous, Eamon, but, but are not 
achieving at a, at a really high level to be transcendent. Yeah, and the problem is transcendent guys don't come along very often in any sport. And, you know, maybe Tiger's future physically just revolves around an occasional made-for-TV match along the lines of what Phil has been doing over the last couple of years rather than the, the intense grind of coming back at an elite level on the PGA Tour. Ultimately, I'm not sure there is an American player out there who is going to be transformational in the way, certainly not in the way Tiger was, but to actually carry the tour itself. I, I don't necessarily see that player out there. I think you're in this period of where you're looking at a collective who are going to be sort of engaging in, in, and create these fun narratives. It's going to be very hard always to get that kind of drive-by sports fan interest in golf without that iconic figure. And the problem is we just don't have that iconic figure anymore. And I'm not sure I see one immediately on the horizon. Who is the most valuable player to, on the PGA Tour, Jaime? I guess Jordan Spieth still, I think just because he's so appealing in the way that he articulates the game. Uh, I think he's a connector to the game in that regard. And I mean, I think he's admired for his character and his persona beyond his game, but his game's exciting as well. Um, but to your earlier argument, uh, not argument, but uh, what you posited was something that it, it, it recalls, you know, again, I go back, but there was, there was a, a time in the 80s and 90s where it's like, there's never going to be another dominant player. And there's a homogenization, you know, the, there's the clones, all the things that were said about the PGA Tour. And then out of nowhere, Tiger popped up. Uh, I'm not, um, you know, I haven't lost faith that another transcendent player will come. Uh, I think there's probably more junior development at a younger age than ever. And I think we may not know who that is, but I think there's more resources and more conditions that can produce someone who's truly um, special, even more than before. Um, now, I think that the other thing we talked about legislates, you can't legislate a superior player coming out anyway. I mean, it just has to happen organically. But beyond that, you, you really have the issue of what players see um, before them in terms of a career. And, you know, that old argument of how much do you want to sacrifice? I think even the greatest talents are going to be less willing to sacrifice to the same extent. And becoming that, that singular, special, historic player is going to be more problematic. And so, you know, I don't know that it hurts the property that much. I think if you love golf, you're going to love the best golf. If it's collective, great. If it's singular, better. But not, it doesn't dismiss the overall excellence that you're watching if you like golf. If you're waiting for something to be, you know, outside the realm of just the game and, and have a super personality, that's a different story. Uh, I love the game for the game more, more than anything. I'm certainly intrigued with the best players, but I think you start, you start losing your core fans when you start trying to make the game about personality and, and sort of this, uh, 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 I guess you'd call it sensationalism. I think it's just got to be the game and the game is slow and hard to watch. And if you don't play it, it's not as interesting. So I, I just feel those, those uh, efforts to make golf a super spectacle are in vain. Is money a problem? I, I mean, a lot of people think money is a problem. I don't. Eamon? I think there's a sense that it leads to complacency. Obviously, the, the elite players, some of them seem to think it's a problem in that 
they think that the crown prince giving them money alleviates the fact that they think the tour doesn't give them enough of it. <laughs> if anything, you know, but if you want to make that value argument in golf, you could say, yeah, compared to other sports, the best golfers in the world aren't necessarily paid enough. You could also apply that value proposition the whole way down the ranks. I mean, if you go down to the guy who made, was 150th on the PGA Tour money list in 2019, the last year unaffected by COVID, with all the bonuses and everything else, made $600,000 on the strength of one top 10 in an opposite field event. That's a lot of money for mediocrity, you could also argue as well. So, yeah, money is an issue, but it, it's an issue maybe top to bottom here. I don't find it that pressing, that concern. I think the players seem to be more motivated by it than, than the fans. I don't think the fans necessarily approach the, the, the money topic in golf as being particularly important because they're accustomed to seeing wild figures thrown around in every other sport. If you think 600,000 is a lot, don't look at the salaries of the ninth men on NBA rosters. It's a lot for mediocrity. <laughs> All right, let me get you out of here with this one. Mike Wan, uh, Jaime, new CEO of the USGA. What's the most important thing he has to do next year? I think he's been pretty good at framing the distance uh, uh, issue. Um, I don't know what he can do. It, it, it's a very complex issue. I, I had hopes that it would be resolved soon. I don't think it's going to be, but I do. I would like to see him, in my opinion, frame that in a way that shows the USGA has the authority to to regulate the game and sort of define what the game should be, especially at the highest level. Uh, I guess that's my own bias. I think the USGA is in pretty good shape. Uh, as a, 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 you know, an economic concern, they've done well. The U.S. opens, I think, on a good path. That's the most important thing. And then to connect to as many people in golf in a way that's authentic uh, so that golf grows in a way that's, I think, sustainable and not make it about, you know, um, sort of the off-site things. I, I, you know, I, I love top golf. It's great to go to, but it's not golf. So I, I just like to see golf be more accessible to more people if that means making it less expensive and perhaps spending less money on, on things that make it expensive, I think that's a good move as well. And the USJ can be the conscience of the game, and I think Mike Wan's well, well uh, prepared to do that. But I just think distance is sort of the thing, the elephant in the room that has, has got to be either, def either defined or hopefully resolved. You don't like top golf. What is that? Okay. I, I like top golf. You, have uh, you ever been to a top golf? Yeah, I've been a couple of times. It's fine. Really? Yeah. Yeah, it's fun. On the but, company yeah, dime, I'm sure. I don't want it to. I don't want it to become a substitute for going to the golf course. Gotcha. Uh, Eamon, is it the distance issue for one next year? I think so. I, I'm with Jaime on that one, and I think it's been interesting how Mike Wan's tone in it has changed, even from the various early days just before he arrived at the USGA to now. You can, I can sense that he's backpedaling off any kind of strident approach to the distance debate and I think it's, it's an unavoidable one. This process started with that distance insights report that came out a few weeks before the pandemic shut everything down and delayed a process and I, I do think ultimately the USJ has the desire to act on the ball. I do think that it was perhaps more pronounced in the Mike Davis era but Mike Davis wasn't the leader to do that because Mike had sort of been relentlessly pilloried and parodied for, for the last 10 years as this kind of Tweedy old style face of the USGA. Mike Wan comes in there as a man who he would probably disagree, but he's never really experienced bad public relations because when you're the commissioner mm -hmm. of the LPGA tour, everyone wants to be seen to be supportive. And he did a great job in that role. 
I think he's going to wake up to a new reality in the USGA role. And I think the distance debate is the one that is going to create that new reality for him. Well, I want to thank both of you. Most importantly, I'm proud of you because you were civilized with each other, uh, which is not always the case when you do television together. Um, But thanks for giving me the time. I really appreciate it. Pleasure, Gary. Thanks, Gary. Well, I thank again uh, two very good friends and uh, two people I have enormous respect uh, for their thoughts on really anything, but primarily the game of golf, Eamon Lynch and Jaime Diaz. Now, next week, Billy Horschel, who's got a lot to say, uh, has a lot of interesting thoughts about a lot of things. He will be joining us next week. And uh, this week, ShopRite LPGA. I'm really proud of the people who are going to be a part of that event. It's going to be an all-female broadcast team led by Cara Banks. Uh, Cara is an exemplary broadcaster. And also the Dunhill Links, great event on the European Tour. And, of course, second event on the PGA Tour is Sanderson Farms. So we will uh, maybe talk about those things. But next week, it's Billy Horschel. And we appreciate you listening to another Five Clubs conversation. We'll talk to you next week. Mm -hmm.